one of the leading lights in the temperance movement of some time ago was a man by the name of Thomas Marshall who lived in Kentucky. Thomas Marshall was a man of extraordinary abilities. He had known the ravages of alcoholism, and he chose to turn against it. He was a gifted man with a very sharp mind and a very strong will. Thomas Marshall became very well known throughout the state. But he had one problem. He refused to surrender his life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. One day he was invited to address a temperance meeting in Broadway Tabernacle. And he stood and he told the cheering crowd those words. Where I offered the entire world for drinking a single glass of brandy, I would turn it down in scorn. And the crowd enthusiastically cheer. And then he continued. He said, my friends, I beg of you, let this temperance movement be without religion. I overcame alcoholism by the strength of my own will. And by the strength of my will, I shall resist it for the rest of my days. We do not need religion, he said. Religion is for the weak. Let us keep the temperance pledge through our own determination and keep religion where it belongs. Thomas Marshall was an accomplished speaker. He was well respected throughout the state of Kentucky. Although he championed godlessness, and yet many people, even Christians, I admired him, respected him, and followed his example. If there was anyone who could keep himself cleansed from the desire for a drink through sheer self-will, through sheer self-determination, it was Thomas Marshall. And that way, of course, he would be a living contradiction to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 12. But that's not where the story ends. Not many years ago since that speech about keeping religion out of temperance, Few years later, Thomas Marshall was buried in a small town, unknown, unsung, dressed in clothes that were given to him by a local Christian charity. Thomas Marshall died with whiskey on his breath. And today I'm here to tell you that if self-cleansing is possible, if being good can be accomplished without God, if society can reform itself, if government programs can cure our social ills, then Jesus died on the cross in vain. Then His death on Calvary was unnecessary. Now hear me right, please. I don't want you to misunderstand me. Of course, Christians must be concerned about the state of morality in our nation, in our communities. Of course, Christians must be concerned about the ethical standards and the ethical conducts of our citizens. Of course, Christians must always and unequivocally must uphold the biblical truth, God's matchless standards for justice and for righteous living. Of course, it has to be part of it. But the Bible tells us again and again that morality without God is as dangerous as immorality. And the reason so many of the traditional churches, so many 
of the traditionally Christian schools are in utter mess today. The reason they are in trouble today is because they denied the depravity of the heart and the desperate need for the blood-bought redemption. They laugh and mock what they call slaughterhouse religion, a slaughterhouse theology, removing all the blood hymns and songs out of their hymnal. They even go further and call what God calls wicked, they call it weakness. They believe that the solution is more culture and not Calvary. They believe that the solution is to be more polished than seeking pardon. They believe that the answer is more education, not sanctification. And to quote Vance Havner, he said they have streamlined the gospel, remodeled heaven, explained away the devil, and air-conditioned hell. (laughs) But this kind of self-cleansing will never change an addict into a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. This kind of self-cleansing will never transform a sinner to a saint. It will never turn a criminal into a Christian. Indeed, I want to tell you that the very reason why we have such an insipid Christianity in our churches today is because the church is like Samson of old. They are sleeping in the lap of Delilah. Although they go forth Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to shake themselves, but the power has left. It is well said that Samson may have looked better after his haircut, but he lost his power. And the world and the flesh and the devil has given the church and the believers and the Christians today a good haircut. Consequently, they have become conformed instead of transformed. And until we repent, and until we proclaim only one message, and it is a message of repentance then we'll be in the Christian church like people are trying to take swimming lessons in a dry land. And that is exactly, precisely, what Jesus is telling the Pharisees and telling us in Matthew 12, 43 to 45. Turn with me in your Bibles. And I must put the parable in context as I always have. Don't ever take a passage out of context. Immediately, prior to Jesus telling the Pharisees of that parable, right before that, even before the Pharisees were asking for a sign, Jesus had just casted out demons out of an individual. And right after they've seen this, before their very eyes, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, show us a sign. A sign. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He has forgiven sins. But oh no, that is enough, not enough for these religious traditionalists. They wanted something more spectacular. They want something that is more fantastic. They wanted to see the sun stand still. They wanted to see the constellation change configuration. They wanted to see the moon race across the sky. No wonder the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, he said... For the Jews seek after signs and the Greeks after wisdom. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ embodies both wisdom and sign. He is a sign and He is wisdom. So what does Jesus say to these Pharisees? He flatly denies giving them a sign. He's not going to give them such a sign except that of Jonah the prophet. You say, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying here? 
Here's what he's telling these hard-hearted Pharisees. He's telling them that he is not a billboy who's going to hop every time they demand and command him to do something. He is telling them that he is no magician who will satisfy their curiosity. He is telling them that he is no caterer to their whims. He is God of very God. And only whatever serves his sovereign purpose, whatever serves his sovereign will, will be done. Furthermore, he is trying to convict them. He's trying to show those self-righteous Pharisees that when Jonah preached to pagan Nineveh, they have repented. They turned and followed the Lord. And yet those who are supposed to have known the Scripture, those who are supposed to have recited the Scripture, have a hard heart and refuse to repent. And in the sense, he's telling them that Nineveh's population are going to be a judgment upon them. He said, the greater than Jonah is here. And you refuse to repent and turn to him. He said, the queen of Sheba, a pagan Arabian queen, traveled 1,200 miles north in order to learn from Solomon's wisdom. And greater than Solomon standing in front of them. And yet they're rejecting his wisdom. They're rejecting his teaching. They're rejecting his mission. And the Pharisees were, in a sense, the epitome of modern-day belief that seem to be rampant in the professing church, that morality can be achieved without the power of God's Son, that righteousness can be lived without the power of God's Holy Spirit, that repentance is not necessary because they're already religious. Their tradition and their religion system is going to save them at the end. How tragic. And it's all around you. It's all around you. And that is why Jesus tells them this parable to illustrate how unclean spirits work. He tells them this parable in order to show them how demons operate. I want you to listen very carefully. I left this particular parable to the end of the series, so I don't want you to switch off now. It is vitally important. There are many Christians miss it because they try to figure everything intellectually, not theologically and biblically. This parable gives us a frightening picture of the horrors of the consequences of self-cleansing. It gives us a frightening picture of the horrors of self-reformation apart from the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now these demons are fallen angels. When Satan, Lucifer, was the star angel in heaven... When he rebelled against God, one-third of the angelic being followed him. We don't know how many, millions and millions and millions of them. And they followed him when he was kicked out of heaven. They continued to be with him and serve his purpose. When he rebelled against God, God kicked him out of heaven. And they were with him. These demons that the Lord Jesus speaks about are Satan's cohorts. They go out and do his dirty work. And Jesus calls them unclean spirits. Why? Because he wants to highlight for us the wickedness and the vile nature of these spirits. Satan sends these, his little minions to work havoc in world, around the world and in nations and in the life, particularly in the churches and particularly even further among the life of the individual believers. Satan sent these evil spirits to oppress you, to attack you. 
This is what He does. He sent them over there in order that you might be discouraged, in order that you might not serve God with all the power that He's made available to you. And how you fight them, and what you do in dealing with them, and having victory over them is what God wants His children to do. He has given us the tools to do it. And I want you to listen very carefully, please. Whenever a demon comes and attacks you, whether it be the demon of fear, or the demon of worry, or the demon of addiction, or the demon of religiosity, or the demon of anger, or the demon of illicit sex, or the demon of self-destructive impulses, or the demon of bitterness, whatever demon that comes in and attacks you, whenever they come to you, and you come to a point of saying, I am fed up with this. I am tired of this. I am going to make a decision that I am going to really be strong on this. You may not call them thus. You may not understand because I think most Christians don't. And you go and get rid of them. You are going to live above the harassing and temptation. You are going to be through self-will and not allow yourself to do that again. Whatever that is for you is different from me. It's different from the neighbor sitting next to you. And you may be like Thomas Marshall, thinking that you can do it through sheer self-will, through sheer self-desire. I want you to listen up, please, because I want to tell you what Jesus is saying. This is the most important thing of all. Other Christians who have not learned how to take daily authority over these demons and these evil spirits. And I want you to learn that today. If it's the only one thing you learn today, it will be worth it. Because I tell you, Satan laughs in his sleeve when he sees people trying through self-will to self-cleanse and self-reform. He's laughing all the way to hell. You know why? Because he knows that it's only a matter of time. And he'll get you again. So listen to what Jesus is saying. Verse 43 of Matthew 12. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. Do you have it in your Bible? Did you find it? Mark it. Put a circle around that. Verse 43. What does it mean? I'm going to tell you what it means after I tell you this. In Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 27, the Apostle Paul said, Do not give a place to the devil. The word place in Greek, the word topos, from which we get the word topography in English, refers to a region. It refers to a location inside of you that can be occupied by demons. That demons can come in and out of as they wish. It is a location. It is a place. It's a definite place. The demons can only find comfort. They can only find rest. They can only find satisfaction when they have a place in the mind and the heart of an individual. So when you are kicking them out of your own power, when you kick them out of your life, when I kick them out of my life, where do they go? They go into waterless places. What does waterless places mean? It means place of desolation. It means place of barrenness. It means a place of extreme discomfort. You and I are not the only ones who like comfort. 
The devil does too. In his own corrupt way, demons are seeking comfort and satisfaction. But away from humans, they can't find it. In animals sometimes, but humans are the first choice. And that is why they are always clamoring to get into your life and into my life. They're always clamoring because that's where they find their sucker. This is where they find their peace. That's where they find their comfort. Satan and his miserable cohorts can achieve the best results in opposing God. Listen carefully. They know they cannot oppose God on a supernatural level because they are defeated foes. But they can achieve their best results in opposing God by working through individuals. By working through people. That is the way they operate. So what does the demon do? After you kicked him out and then he comes back because he will come back again and again, not just once. In answering that question, I want you to listen. Whatever he's going to do when he comes back depends on the condition that you are in. It depends on what kind of reception he's going to receive when he comes back. And he doesn't just come back once, he'll come back again and again, day in and day out, day in and day out. Opportunity in and opportunity out. So when he comes to you, what do you do? Does he find the door ajar? When he comes to you, what does he do? Does he find you waiting for his temptation? What does he find? Does he find your resistance to be weak? I want to tell you what I do. If it helps you, praise the Lord. If it doesn't, you're on your own. (laughs) Figure it out yourself. (laughs) When I kick these miserable creatures out, I immediately hang a sign on the door of my mind and my heart. Under new management. Under the management of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? That scares the heaven out of them. (laughs) Because when the devil comes back into your life, remember this, he knows where every lock and bolt is in your life. He is very familiar with your weaknesses. He is very familiar with your Achilles heels. He is very familiar with your vulnerability. He is very familiar where the soft spots are in your life. He knows them all. So if you are serious about Casting him out of your life and live above the temptation. You better change all the locks and the bolts in your heart. If you're serious about overcoming addiction, you better let the Holy Spirit of God put a new lock in that area. If you are serious about overcoming fear and worry, you better let the Holy Spirit come in and install an alarm system in that area. If you are serious about overcoming sexual impurity, you better let the Holy Spirit come in and bolt that door. If you are serious about overcoming anger and bitterness and jealousy and envy and the occult, if you are serious about that, you had better let the Holy Spirit come in and replace the keys and then put the keys in His hands. But then the Lord Jesus tells us another reason Why you should do this. Verse 45. Jesus said that when the devil, when that demon, that unclean spirit goes out and then he comes back, he brings with him seven other spirits more evil than himself. And they enter and dwell there. 
Whenever you try to overcome with your self-will, you are not only opening yourself for the dead demon to come back. He does not come back alone. He comes back fortified. He brings seven more with him. Worse than he is. And they come in, and they just sit there. They take over. They come with fortified strength. Please hear me right. This can happen to churches. It can happen to Christian families. It can happen to Christian individuals. If you have been even a casual student of modern church history, you will have to agree with me that in the past 50 years or so, the professing church has gone from bad to worse. And I'm going to tell you exactly what is happening in the light of the Word of God as we read it here in Matthew 12. I'll tell you exactly what happens. Every time a few faithful ones see things are going bad, they get together and they try to bring a resolution. They try to bring a vote more consistent with the biblical views of things. And so the resolution passes. And a few years later, the church is in worse condition than it was a few years ago. You would say, what is happening? What's going on here? They have relied on the solution. They have relied on the resolution. They have relied on this voting procedure. They have relied on majority rule. They have relied on lobbying. They have relied on political maneuvering in order to achieve self-reformation. They have never invited the Holy Spirit to come in and take over and fill that void that was left. So these demons have been operating in these churches. Everyone gets out, brings eight back. Everyone that goes out, eight back, because he comes back with them. You know, seven plus one equal eight. I can count. (laughs) And consequently, there are churches that are riddled with demons today. And they're going in a downward direction. But this happens in the life of believers too, you know. I cannot tell you how many times, and I was reflecting upon this that whole week, and you talk about spiritual warfare, try to prepare a sermon on this topic. And you know what spiritual warfare is all about, I promise you. I thought I did until this week. <laughs> I was reflecting about that the last 10 years, just the last 10 years of ministry in this church, and I reflected that the tens of people that I have met with, and I talked with and prayed with, those who were oppressed, those who were going through oppression, Demonic oppression. And I prayed with them. They wanted to be freed from this and freed from that. And I would pray with them. I explained to them the Word of God. That it is not just a one thing. It is a daily thing. But you know, I look back the last 10 years. Within a short period of time of that, they go out and they not only go away from the fellowship of this church, they go away from fellowship with God altogether. What happened? How come? They have failed to let the Holy Spirit of God dominate in their life, rule in their life on a daily basis. That's the operative word, daily basis. Please, I want you to listen and I want you to hear me right because there's a lot of confusion about this subject. To be delivered from whatever demon that is oppressing you and the sin that he controls is not a magical zap and you're okay. It doesn't work this way. I wish it did. You say, boy, this is exhausting. This is tiring. Every day I've got to be on the alert. Well, let me ask you this. Did you ever get up one day and said, gosh, I ate yesterday. I'm not going to eat today. Well, you know, I breathed yesterday, so I'm not going to breathe today. 
It works the same way spiritually. That it is a daily inner filling of the Holy Spirit. It is a daily surrender to His power. It's a daily surrender to His strength. It's a daily walking in the Spirit, living in the Spirit. It's a daily putting on the arm of God. I think it was D.L. Moody. He used to love to debate with university students. And one time he held an empty glass, drinking glass, and, and he kept saying to the students, he said, how do I get the air out of this glass? And everybody would say this or that or the other thing. And finally one person said, well, you can get a vacuum and vacuum the air out. He said, that would shatter the glass. And finally he picks up a pitcher of water and he fills that glass with water, explaining that this is the only sure way of getting the air out of the glass. Daily inner filling of the Holy Spirit will work the same way. It's the only thing, it's the only way that you can have victory in your life. It's the only way that you can have daily victory in your life is when you become filled daily with the power of God's Holy Spirit. It's a sure way of blotting out the demons and the sin that they control. Not so long ago, I read something that was so relevant to this that I want to share it with you. A man by the name of Jose Cabero. He was one of Spain's most brilliant metadors. He uttered these last words just before he lost consciousness and died. He said, Pele, this bull has killed me. Now, Cabrera was only 21 years of age, but he enjoyed the most spectacular success, the most spectacular career. And in his 1985 bullfight, Jose made a tragic mistake. He thrust his, his sword a final time into a bleeding, delirious bull who was then collapsed. Considering the finishing struggle of what he has done, Cabrera turned around to the crowd to receive their thunderous applause and acknowledge it. However, the bull was not dead. It rose and lunged at the unsuspecting matador. Its horns pierced his back, puncturing his heart. I know some of you are resisting to what the Word of God is telling you today, how the Spirit of God is convicting you today, and you're resisting it, you're rationalizing it in your mind. I can hear your wheels turning. But I want to tell you on the authority of the Word of God that whenever you think that you have the demon defeated and you leave yourself uncovered without God's daily provision of power, and God has a daily provision of power for you, He will come back from the back and pierce you from behind. God has given us the spirit of power and of love and of self-control. It is you, it's up to you and to me to daily receive that power in order to have victory. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.